Every town has its legend, folklore that's passed down from generation to generation and seems to grow in the telling of it and through the passage of time. I visited Minnesota a few years back and saw statue after statue of Paul Bunyan. Legends about Paul Bunyan fill North America from French Canada to the American Midwest to New England. Stories of the lumberjack differ from place to place. Some say he was delivered to earth by multiple giant storks because he was already a mountain of a baby. There are stories that his footprints created Minnesota's 10,000 lakes and that his shovel created the Grand Canyon as it dragged behind him and that Mount Hood in Oregon was created by rocks that Bunyan piled up to extinguish a campfire. One of my favorite movies in the 1980s was The Midnight Hour. It originally aired on the night of Friday, November 1st, 1985 on ABC. It starred Sherry Belafonte, LeVar Burton of Roots, Reading Rainbow, and Star Trek The Next Generation fame, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Michelle's sister of course, and Dick Van Patten, the well-known actor who played Tom Bradford, the father, in 8 is Enough. Incidentally, Macaulay Culkin, only four years old at the time the movie was shot, played an extra in the movie and is listed in the credits as Halloween Kid. The film's protagonist, Phil Grenville, is played by Lee Montgomery, who acted in several movies as a child and teenager during the 70s and 80s. He also played young Davy Rolfe in the 1976 film Burnt Offerings, about a family who rents a house in the countryside one summer and subsequently fall victims to hauntings and possessions. Betty Davis is also in Burnt Offerings and adds to the creepy vibe of the movie. She also added greatly to the scary nature of the 1980 movie Watcher in the Woods, playing the mother of the young girl Karen who goes missing. Both the novel and film Burnt Offerings predated Stephen King's novel and Stanley Kubrick's movie The Shining, but there are many similarities. The theme of cabin fever and being cooped up too long with one's own family, which we all became far too familiar with in 2020. Am I right? The theme of the enemy being one's own mother or father is also a common thread that Burnt Offerings shares with The Shining. The Amityville Horror, also an extremely popular novel and film of the day, shares this common thread as well. I remember watching The Midnight Hour as a seven-year-old child as it aired that night in November. The movie is about a group of teenagers in a town called Pitchford Cove, somewhere in New England. It's highly similar to Salem, Massachusetts. It's Halloween, and Phil gives a presentation in class about some of the town's ancestors dating back to the Puritans, and how they believed in witches and demonic possessions, and that those who were thought to be possessed by these malevolent forces should quickly be put to rest. After school lets out on Halloween, Phil, a nerdy kid, along with some of his cooler friends, some football players and cheerleaders, break into the town's museum, and in the basement they find an ancient scroll sealed in wax. They break the wax seal and go to the town cemetery, where Sherry Belafonte's character, Melissa Cavender, reads the words from the scroll out loud, which then causes the town's dead to come back to life. The group of teenagers leaves the misty cemetery, not knowing that six feet below, the dead, some of them good people in life, and others either thieves or serial killers, are coming back to the land of the living. Horror ensues as the town is filled with the undead and the malicious. Phil falls in love with the recently risen Sandy Matthews, a pretty blonde played by Jonna Lee who died as a teenager during a drag race that went awry. Each of the undead has returned to complete the things they never got to fully do in life. Near the end of the movie, it's up to Phil to return to the cemetery and read the words out loud that will return the dead to their final resting places. The movie has a great soundtrack. Featuring How Soon Is Now by The Smiths, 
Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival, and Mama Told Me Not to Come by Three Dog Night. The title track is In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett, and it provides the perfect tone for the movie. For decades, nearly a century in fact, a similar legend also involving the dead and a cemetery has been passed down from generation to generation. In the Salt Lake City Cemetery, a vast, expansive burial place located in the avenues above the city sits a mausoleum-looking grave that stands about seven feet tall. Known as Emo's Grave, this spot has captured the imagination of all who have heard of it, and surely of those who have had the chance to stand in front of it and wonder about the magic it holds. Whether that magic is either magic of darkness or light will be examined in this episode. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. This is the legend of Emo's Grave. The Salt Lake Cemetery has long been a place that has captured the imagination of those who have walked its uneven roads and taken in the beauty and majesty of the place. It's located northeast of downtown Salt Lake, essentially on a large hill between 11th Avenue and 4th Avenue north to south and between U Street and N Street east to west. It's the largest municipal cemetery in the United States, 120 acres in fact. Disneyland is 100 acres in size. Only when California Adventure is factored into the size calculation with its extra 72 acres of space does that area become larger than the Salt Lake City Cemetery. There are currently in the ballpark of 130,000 people buried at Salt Lake Cemetery, and many are notables and celebrities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the predominant religion in the area. Of the 16 presidents of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have passed on, 12 of them are buried at the Salt Lake City Cemetery. The current prophet and president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, who will turn 97 in September of this year, will also be buried at the Salt Lake City Cemetery when he eventually passes away. His first wife, Dansel, who died in 2005, is buried there. The Nelsons already have a beautiful and ornately designed headstone in place. Walking around the cemetery is a workout. In fact, as a side hobby, I give tours of the cemetery primarily during the summer months, and the tours provide an ample cardio workout. The cemetery is on a hill, and some parts of the hill are quite steep. It requires a certain amount of balance to even navigate the streets, curbs, and grassy areas between the graves, as the ground is very uneven due to shifting over the years. The August 19, 1945 edition of the Deseret News talks of a flash flood that came through the avenues, and more particularly the cemetery. Several caskets were exposed, and several headstones were washed down to 4th Avenue. On September 9, 2020, in times of COVID, one of the largest windstorms to ever hit the avenues swept through the Salt Lake Cemetery, uprooting several extremely large trees. Headstones were flung about. Many were damaged. No caskets themselves were unearthed. But some of the large holes caused by the pulled up root systems of the trees made it nearly possible to see the tops of the cement vaults that held those caskets. I walked through the cemetery a few days later. The damage was astounding. Courtesy of KSL News in Salt Lake City, here's a portion of a news report from the week of that storm. What a mess. The winds have calmed, but this is just the beginning of a major undertaking in Salt Lake. And this is the problem with them. 
they have a shallow root base. The historic city cemetery, one of the hardest hit areas. Lifelong resident Pat Lawrence says he's never seen anything like it. His family members are buried here. Unreal. It was like a bomb went off in the avenues. It was terrible. At least 100 trees toppled over, not including the power lines. Looks intentional. You know, like someone took their finger and just pulled which ones they wanted over. Dozens of headstones were damaged, but initial assessments don't indicate any graves were unearthed. Big. They're 100 years old. And uh, any, anyway, there's, there's a lot survived, so we're going to be all right. Now, we were chatting with the cemetery sexton, and he tells us that, you know, there are a lot of uh, gravestones that have been damaged. We asked about those prominent figures that are buried here, church leaders. We know that there's just a lot of meaning and history in the cemetery. They're telling us the initial assessment isn't showing that at least those grave sites for prominent figures have any damages. So that's some good news. Also, anyone interested in volunteering or coming in to help, you're asked to just contact the city cemetery and see if there's anything that they can do. They say they may have some things for folks to do. Like I said in the intro, one of the reasons why the movie The Midnight Hour resonated so much with me as a kid is the curiosity we all have about life after death and how close to each one of us are the spirits of those who've gone on. I was giving a tour of the cemetery once for a church group of teenagers and we were a little late getting started. We were running out of daylight and were only about halfway through the tour when I gave them a choice. I said to them that we could either visit the rest of the graves of the prophets and historical leaders that were buried there, or I could take them to some of the graves in the cemetery that have the creepiest and most paranormal stories surrounding them. Without hesitation, they all spoke up unanimously and said they would rather visit the creepy graves. We headed straight to Emo's grave. The grave of Jacob E. Moritz better known as Emo's grave, taking into account Moritz's middle initial E and the first two letters of his last name, M-O, is located in the Jewish portion of the Salt Lake City Cemetery, named the B'nai Israel section. It's essentially along the south end of the cemetery. Emo's grave specifically lies in the square between 4th Avenue and 245 North and between Center Street and Cypress Avenue. Over the years, I've wondered several times why Moritz's grave has garnered so much attention, while many of the other graves in the cemetery have essentially been ignored. The supernatural stories surrounding the grave have only grown over time and haven't really ever waned. It's only in recent years that another grave in the Salt Lake City Cemetery has gotten as much, if not more, attention than Emo's, and that is the grave of Lily E. Gray. I'll devote a future episode to her grave as well. Jacob Moritz died in Germany in 1910 and was brought back to Salt Lake and cremated. No sooner was his mausoleum-like granite marker put into place than teenagers began visiting it and concocting stories about Moritz and his final resting place. I think it may be as simple as the general look of the stone marker. It's about seven to eight feet tall, surrounded by its own ornate granite curbing. There's a six-foot-tall metal door on the west side of the grave with a gated window near the top of it. There was a statue-like urn placed carefully inside that window that was damaged through the years as the grave got more and more attention. To understand the grave, we need to understand Moritz himself. 
Jacob E. Moritz was born in Bavaria in Germany on February 22, 1849. As he grew up in Germany, he had a natural affinity and ability in the world of business. He was educated at a young age by many mentors who taught him the ways of the financial world. And at the meager age of 17, he moved to America. He lived in New York City for two years and tried his hand at several odd jobs and businesses. Then he moved west to Helena, Montana in the late 1860s. He tried his hand at mining, the primary industry by far in that area of the country at that time. Really, the entire western United States was replete with mining in those days. Jacob quickly realized that those who mined also loved to drink. He delved into the alcohol manufacturing and selling business during his time in Montana, and he forged many friendships and networking relationships that would serve him the rest of his life. In 1871, he realized that to the south, in Utah, the mining industry was booming as well, and that though Mormons did not have a reputation for being heavy drinkers, he recognized that supply and demand would still serve him in the Utah Territory. His first brewery in Utah was called the Little Montana Brewery. It was located at Warm Springs, near modern-day Warm Springs Road, just north of the city, only blocks from Temple Square. There used to be a natural hot springs in that area where citizens would go to take a soak. His fortune grew, and four years later, in 1875, Jacob purchased interest in a brewery at 1000 East 500 South. Only six short years after that, this brewery would become the Salt Lake Brewing Company, still widely known today. During the 1880s and 90s, Moritz's beer won medal after medal in the state and regional fairs in the Intermountain West. It came to the point, in fact, that he was producing and selling more from his brewery than the next five largest Utah breweries put together. By the turn of the 20th century, Salt Lake Brewing Company was capping 6,000 bottles a day and operating 36 saloons. In 1889, Moritz married a Hawaiian woman by the name of Lahela Lusan. He became involved in politics as well. Nationally, he was a Republican, but was considered very liberal in Utah's party system. He became the chairman of the committees to advance Utah's mining industry. In 1895, he was part of the convention that drafted the constitution under which Utah would become a state. Utah gained statehood on Saturday, January 4, 1896. He was very active in fundraising, and some of the funds he raised would be put towards the construction of the first Salt Palace, which was built in 1899 and stood on 900 South between Main Street and State Street in Salt Lake City. The edifice would be constructed partially by large pieces of rock salt, which gave it its name. It was an ornate building which had a bicycle racing track on the property, as well as rides and other amusements. Sadly, the first Salt Palace was destroyed by fire on August 29, 1910. Moritz also contributed toward funds that would be used to fill boxcars of food and send them to survivors of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Even though he was Jewish and made his money from the sale of alcoholic beverages, Jacob gained the trust of the heavily Mormon local population when in 1885 he testified in a grand jury that was brought together to prosecute local church leaders for the practice of polygamy. He stated in the grand jury that where parties had been indicted, tried, and convicted, those parties ought to have the chance to correct those behaviors while still out in society, and that they didn't deserve to be incarcerated. Moritz even ran for Senate against Simon Bamberger, also Jewish and also from Germany. 
making him a rarity in an area full of Mormons as well. The two were arch rivals, and at times, they hated each other. Bamberger ran against Moritz in the state senate and defeated him. Bamberger was also a prolific businessman. He was an integral part in the construction of an interurban railroad that would serve the Wasatch Front for years to come. In 1917, Bamberger would become the fourth governor of Utah and held the distinction of being the first non-Mormon and also the first Democratic governor of the state. In fact, he was only the third Jewish man ever elected governor of any state. In the latter part of Moritz's life, he would become friends with Simon Bamberger. If you visit Emo's grave today, and if you're facing his grave, you need to only do a 180 and face west. And there, a mere 30 feet or so from the grave of Jacob E. Moritz, is the grave of Simon Bamberger, who would die in 1926. So what became of Jacob Moritz? Did he become involved in devil worship, resulting in a curse on his grave? Did he join some cult? Was he a prolific serial killer? No. He lived a good life. In November of 1909, Jacob had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. He hoped that a vacation and getting out of the soot-filled air of the Great Basin would help. He remarked to his wife that he had worked 26 years since his last vacation with hardly a day's rest. They left on vacation. They crossed multiple countries in Europe, and it would end six months later in Wiesbaden, Germany, as Moritz succumbed to stomach cancer on June 9, 1910, at the age of 61. His obituary in the Salt Lake Telegram stated that he accumulated a fortune, not a single dollar of which was dishonestly gained, and he never betrayed a trust. So the namesake of Emo's grave was, in fact, a good man. He was cremated, and his remains were placed within the walls of the granite marker that still sits in the Jewish portion of the Salt Lake Cemetery. His wife later moved to Germany, where she would live out the rest of her life and pass away in Germany herself. She took with her Jacob's remains. So in reality, the beautiful grave marker at the Salt Lake Cemetery currently holds nothing but a tale that has grown through the years of a grave where if you visit it, forces can be summoned and things will happen. I heard about Emo's grave growing up in the 1980s and 90s. I knew high school kids would go there to do a seance or two or see if they could hear or see something. I didn't visit it for the first time until 2008 while on a date. We joined a local bus tour that took us to Emo's grave as one of the stops of the tour. I consider myself lucky to have finally gone there. In 2009, I made a short film with some friends called The Legend of the Dogs. It was sort of a spoof on the Blair Witch Project about two demonic dogs that haunted the hills above Salt Lake City. Here's an audio clip from that movie featuring the part in which we stopped at Emo's grave. We've got this grave here. It's more Moritz. And Is it on? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Wait, so how, okay, how are we going to do this again? Okay, so what it is, is uh, we're going to walk around. The story goes, if you walk around the grave three times backwards. Did you see anything? No. I felt like we gave it our best. You know, you walk around a grave three times backwards, you'd expect that something would appear. Well, I mean, it doesn't always happen. Beginning in 2014, I started giving tours at the Salt Lake Cemetery, and one of the stops on the tour is this fabled grave. The story was that if you hold a candle and walk around the grave three times backwards, all while chanting, Emo, 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 you could look inside the gated door on the front, and you would see the glowing face of Jacob Moritz staring back at you. 
That's no longer possible as some years later, the opening in the door was covered with a steel plate, making it impossible to see inside. Graffiti had gathered on the grave over the years as many visitors had felt that they had to leave their mark there. The cemetery sexton thought it necessary to cover the opening. The grave is cleaner now, no graffiti and peaceful, but as you walk up to it and maybe around it, there's still the slightest chance that you just might see or hear something. You'll certainly feel it as you near that grave that has stood there for over a hundred years and capture the imagination of thousands. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West.